0: Welcome to Indispensable, where we provide you with evidence-based medication advice so that you can feel empowered about your own health. I'm your host, Anna Barwick, and I'm an experienced clinical pharmacist, academic, and PhD candidate. Join me as we hear from the medication experts, pharmacists. Episode 8, Invisible Disease, Making Connections. Janna Link is a 35-year-old mother of two who is a registered pharmacist, working in both hospital and community pharmacy roles in the past, but she's currently taking a break due to ongoing chronic health conditions. Jana was diagnosed with hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, or HEDS, at the age of 33, and HEDS is a rare connective tissue disorder. Jenna established the health advocacy brand Zebra Blends at the beginning of 2020 as it became evident to her in her search for answers for her own health issues that rare diseases and similarly chronic illnesses are very commonly under-researched, underfunded, and in turn underdiagnosed. Jenna hopes to change this by providing patient advocacy services to people experiencing rare disease and chronic illness. She hopes that via the increase in exposure and awareness of these conditions, the path to diagnosis and treatment will become much smoother and quicker. Hi, Jenna. Thanks so much for joining us on the Indispensable podcast. Hi, Anna. Um, So thanks for having me on firstly. I'm really excited to be a part of it. So today we're actually talking about invisible disease. And can you tell me what invisible diseases are actually present in the community that people might not know about?
1: There's a lot of invisible illnesses and diseases in the community, but the term invisible disease is a little bit of a misnomer in that, um, really a lot of them are no more invisible than, say, hypertension. It's just that when people with these illnesses are not utilising disability aids, people can't really appreciate the full impact of them. Um, firstly, I'm going to talk about the invisible illness that I personally live with, um, and it's a syndrome called hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, or HEADS as it's known for short. Um, I've got a host of other comorbid conditions which fall underneath my EDS diagnosis and they all require different specialist treatment and management. Uh, HEDS is considered a rare disease. It's an inherited connective tissue disorder. And as connective tissue is found right throughout the body it can look really different um, in presentation from patient to patient with different organ systems affected. um, And they can be really vastly um, differently affected in terms of severity. Some people might experience really mild symptoms and other people might be extremely severe in their symptom presentation. Um, I've got a couple of analogies, which I've heard throughout my um, journey living with EDS um, since my diagnosis that I've heard, which I'd like to share with the audience. Um, the first one was one I actually heard, had one of my doctors um, explain to me and news. Um, it's to think of your connective tissue as the concrete or the glue holding your body together. And that the concrete or aka connective tissue in an EDS body is actually pretty dodgy. It's the quality of the concrete that they built in Naples, not Rome. The um, <laughs> other one which I found really, really useful and one which I think all um, clinicians, it's a great one for all clinicians to know um, and be taught is that if you can't connect the issues Think connective tissues. And basically, this is so simple. It basically means that for any complex patient who you can't seem to join the dots for and come up with a definitive diagnosis, um, that you should be potentially looking at an undiagnosed connective tissue disorder for that patient. Um, There's a lot of other common invisible illnesses and rare diseases in the community um, and syndromes as well which would really benefit from greater awareness and advocacy. Um, The flow and effect of this would be that patients would receive a greater level of understanding and empathy from their clinicians or treating practitioners. So the first one I'll touch on is chronic pain. Um, Underneath chronic pain, you've got a whole host of um, conditions. uh, I'll list a few of them. So one of the big ones is fibromyalgia. Um, You've also got complex regional pain syndrome or for example, small fiber neuropathy. Um, and chronic pain can be, have huge impacts on people's day-to-day living. Another one's chronic migraines, um, which chronic migraines are considered, um, people having headaches on more than 15 days of a month would be considered to have chronic migraines. So as you can imagine, that's a fairly debilitating condition to yeah, half a month with a headache, a migraine, yeah. Um, Chronic fatigue syndrome is another really invisible illness which deserves so much more attention than it receives. It's also known as myalgic encephalomyelitis. Um, It has been recognized by the World Health Organization as a neurological disease um, since 1969, believe it or not, but there's still often a huge stigma associated with chronic fatigue syndrome um, and for people that receive that diagnosis. Orthostatic intolerance is another really big one. Um, And underneath that, you've got things like postural orthostatic intolerance syndrome and dysautonomia. I myself suffer from this underneath my um, Ehlers-Danlos and a little funny, not so funny at the time, but looking back now, um, it flares up and down in in severity. And it was quite bad when I started my internship as a pharmacist in a hospital in Sydney. And I was fainting a lot on the ward um, when I was doing my ward rounds as an intern. And this was quite embarrassing because at the time I didn't really fully understand why I was fainting. Um, And just having to work around that and implement um, things that sort of allowed me to complete my ward rounds as a pharmacist without fainting um, was really tricky, but it was really cool because a lot of the doctors on the wards were interested in it and they were all really helpful in helping me implement these. strategies to avoid me fainting. Um, and I mean, it was as simple as propping myself up on a windowsill by the bed, um, making sure a chair was always available, um, which is also great for them being on the same level as a patient, obviously. But yeah, little things like that, um, because standing still, still for periods of time would cause me to faint. Um, so yeah, um, endometriosis is another really invisible chronic pain condition. Um, it's just received a huge amount of funding um, from the federal government, which is great for research. Um, but all of these conditions and syndromes and diseases, um, it's possible that they're not really as rare or invisible as thought. It's likely that the prevalence is just really underestimated, in turn, under-researched, underfunded, under-diagnosed, and even worse, maybe misdiagnosed. So yeah, that's, that's sort of a pretty, very brief synopsis of the invisible illnesses that exist within the community and there's many many more that I could talk about.
0: Absolutely and I'm sure for people that are experiencing you know these symptoms that might be unusual and haven't been diagnosed over a long period of time it's obviously quite concerning and you know maybe you feel like you know you you know you're not really um, sure what's going on. so how long on average does it take to get a diagnosis and management for some of these conditions?
1: So for me personally I experienced my first um, EDS symptoms as a four-year-old I had my first um, subluxation or dislocation I dislocated my fingers Um, so that's you know and I'm 35 currently so that's 31 years really from for a diagnosis, I suppose you could say in my case, um, because it's not really usual for a four-year-old to dislocate joints. Um, Yeah, and then I had a lifetime of other EDS symptoms. Um, And Jenna,
0: at that time, when you were four, was that investigated?
1: Not really, no, I was just taken to a physio and they were, joints were relocated and strapped and yeah. Yeah, so. It wasn't, and that was sort of something I experienced throughout my teenage years as well, when I first developed dysautonomia, chronic migraines, um, a lot of the conditions that come underneath um, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, I suppose I was that classic patient that we couldn't connect the dots for mm-hmm. so we should have been looking at connective tissue yes.
0: um,
1: but it was just overlooked um, and i was just often sent to different specialties who look at their particular specialty and nobody was sort of over overseeing and joining joining the pieces
0: together yeah and that's hard if it's isolated isn't it or, or you know yeah. it's silos yeah. you know you go to a neurologist or you go to a you know it's, it does make it really tricky
1: definitely definitely so and I mean, especially for women, um, unfortunately, more often, um, diagnoses can take a lot longer for women with these rare, um, rare syndromes and rare illnesses and rare disease. And again, the primary reason for this, I think, comes back to a lack of awareness and understanding of these conditions by general practitioners, um, which can often lead to a delay in referral, but also a lack of specialist knowledge in these conditions in Australia is a big problem. Personally, I've had to travel to Washington um, in the States, D.C., to see one of the world's best neurosurgeons who deals specifically with an EDS population um, group of patients. But not even just EDS, it's EDS patients who have the specific spinal abnormalities that I do, which lead to my brainstem compression. So it's such a subspecialty of neurosurgery that unfortunately we just don't seem to have the population, obviously, in Australia to warrant our specialists going into these sub-specialties. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another factor is that it's really common for the symptoms to be quite vague and non-specific, as, as we spoke about briefly, touched on just a second ago, um, That correl- the symptoms that correlate with all of these conditions. And often they're sadly still put down to stress or anxiety or depression. Um, and that can be in the initial workup, and that can actually really slow down and hamper hamper a patient achieving a correct diagnosis and in turn getting to the right treatment sooner. Um, So it's really vital that we break down the barriers around these types of illnesses, especially chronic fatigue syndrome, which is, as I said, recognized as a neurological disease. Um, The stigma needs, really needs to be smashed. And, you know, stigma, medical stigma can include factors such as gender, race, socioeconomic factors. These all need to be taken into account and set aside just to ensure that patients
0: do receive a timely diagnosis. And it also sounds like patients need to be confident that, you know, that there's something not right and and people know their own bodies best, don't they? So it's, you know, I imagine you had more than two or three opinions um, throughout, you know, your time to get to diagnosis. How many people or how many um, doctors or specialists did you go through?
1: Yeah. So for me, um, most definitely I had two very difficult pregnancies um, at age 30 and 31 because my babies are very close together. As I Uh, (laughs) mine. It's always exciting
0: Uh, at home, isn't
1: it? Not recommended for an EDS body. (laughs) So I, during pregnancy, one of the general physicians I saw actually told me I just had an achy body type. Um, Wow. You know, I found that as, as a healthcare practitioner at the time and only uh, you know I found that really sort of off-putting I didn't quite know how to take that it was quite dismissive Um, and after that I pushed to see a rheumatologist who at this point I had a diagnosis of uh, of hypermobility spectrum disorder which is not quite an Ehlers-Danlos diagnosis it's sort of um, very very interrelated and interconnected but slightly different and the rheumatologist I saw told me I didn't fit the bill, didn't have EDS. Um, and I was just deconditioned from my pregnancies close together. Wow. Um, and again, that was such a blow. It was a real blow to my psyche. And, you know, I consider myself somebody who's able to pretty fiercely advocate for myself and it was still such a blow. Um, at that point, I went back to my GP and really pushed to see a geneticist. And it was so validating when I finally got to see this geneticist who was amazing. And within our first appointment, she was definitive in her um, mind that I definitely had Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Um, we did do some genetic blood tests just to rule out some of the rarer types. There's 13 subtypes of EDS um, to determine which subtype I did have, but it, it, they did come back negative because they haven't actually identified the gene for the hypermobility subtype as yet. Yeah, that's something that's being worked on at the moment. Wow. So. It's really not unusual for people to experience a delay in diagnosis of decades for these kind of conditions, which is really sad because it really does delay um, patients being able to access effective treatment or effective tr- management strategies being put into place.
0: Uh, yeah, absolutely. And and like you say, you know, if you feel like you're d- being dismissed or you made to think it's all in your head, I mean, that is just a, such a huge hit, um, you know, to your confidence and your ability to advocate for yourself. So, I mean, this is wonderful, you know, to hear about, you know, your experience and, and what you went through. And I mean, you, you've you got that knowledge, you, you've you got that kind of, you know, you've got a medical background, you, you understand, you know, these kind Kind of things and it, and it was still even tough for you so i think it's reassuring for a lot of people to know that you know they, they might have been fighting for a long time but it's still worthwhile fighting through and, and trying mm. to get something that is a little bit more de- definitive so that they can manage it appropriately
1: yeah most definitely with these rare conditions um you you're you, you have to become your own best advocate
0: um, Absolutely yeah. essential knowledgeable Indispensable, your pharmacist. So, Jenna, what are some of the medications then that are used to manage chronic conditions?
1: So, with chronic pain, I suppose specifically you've got mainstays like um, regular paracetamol dosing, um, and then above and beyond that, you've got um, your NSAIDs, so anti-inflammatory medications. But there's also a lot of um, prescribing of what we call off-label, the off-label use of medications, um, where you're using a medication that isn't typically indicated for pain, um, but has proven anecdotally to be um, effective or potentially effective. Um, So we're talking about things like tricyclic antidepressants, SNRI antidepressants and the gabapentinoid um, group of medications as well and these are mainly utilized for their ability to assist with neuropathic type pain, um, so nerve pain. Um, Other medications which are used off-label increasingly um, is low-dose naltrexone. Um, There's a lot of emerging evidence showing this has the potential to work on immune modulation and also as a novel anti-inflammatory agent for pain Uh, It's also being used in other autoimmune and nervous system conditions, such as multiple sclerosis. Um, And then cannabinoids is another big one, a new one for us in Australia. It's only recently been um, legalised for doctors to prescribe it. um, And that's um, accessed by the special access scheme. So you need to get approval, Uh, the prescribers need to be registered under the special access scheme. Um, And you actually have to get approval from the health minister to um, prescribe these for each patient. But it can be a great option. Um, Also in chronic pain conditions where it's clinically indicated and where other medication options have been sufficiently trialed and proven ineffective. Then we've got things such as antispasmatics um, and muscle-relactant medications. And these can be a huge um, tool in people's medication toolboxes with chronic conditions. Um, These aren't medications that should be used regularly, but with close monitoring and in special circumstances, they definitely do um, have a place in chronic health um, medication treatment. Botox is another really good one. Um, I get my Botox every three months for my migraines, and it's just a tool to help control my migraines. It doesn't um, completely take them away, but it, does reduce the number of migraines that I experience. So that's a great one also available on the Pharmaceutical Benefits Schemes uh, for chronic and persistent migraine.
0: So Um, Janet, do you get that in your face or around your head or I'm just thinking, you know, a lot of people probably use Botox for more beauty purposes or for (laughs) faking (laughs) tics? Yeah, so my, my neurologist administers
1: it for me um, yep. and it's I get a modified protocol. There is a, a full uh, migraine protocol, but because of the instability I have in my cervical spine, I actually can't get any Botox at the back of my head. Mm-hmm. So I only get my sort of temple and forehead region done. Um, Because it is a muscle relaxant with the instability in my neck, we don't want to relax the muscles in my neck because they're holding everything together. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Okay. And, and so you just mentioned um, the pharmaceutical benefit scheme there as well, which is, is the Australian um, it's a, basically it allows Australians to get medications at a, you know, in a cost effective way, but you also mentioned off label. So I imagine if it's off label, most of these medications are not covered by the PBS or the pharmaceutical benefit scheme. So you have to pay privately. What are the costs of that? Like is that expensive for, for patients that have these chronic conditions and for yourself?
1: It certainly can be. Um, I personally don't take a lot of medications because um, I haven't found them to be hugely um, effective for my specific um, circumstances. Um, but certainly, low dose naltrexone, which is one medication I have found extremely effective, it is quite expensive. It's um, provided; it's a compounded medication, so um, that that's provided by a compounding pharmacy and they make up the medication for me. Um, and, and, yeah, any compounded medication or off-label is certainly more expensive than anything that is a, is being used for
0: its intended um, indication. Mm. Absolutely. And so obviously there's a real financial burden there too. Um, yes. Now, you also use some other kind of physical aids too, don't you, to help?
1: Yeah, so I I wear a neck brace um, on the advice of my neurosurgeon, the neurosurgeon that I um, continue to speak with in Washington. We now do Skype appointments. Um, (laughs) Much, much cheaper than flying over to see you next time. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I wear a neck brace about four or five hours a day um, and it helps me hugely with my symptoms. Um, But unfortunately, wearing it any more than that is counterproductive as it would lead to wastage in my neck muscles. So it's a a bit of a balancing act to find the right amount with the use of the neck brace. I also have a walking bike, um, which I've recently got. It's quite a new aid for me. Um, It's sort of similar, I guess, in essence to a walker, um, a mobility frame, but
0: it's a little bit cool. It looks (laughs) fun. quite cool yeah <laughs> that's very cool okay so there are things out there as well obviously other than medication and, and mm. obviously you know other therapies that that you've been trialing as well so that's mm. really good to know yeah certainly i do
1: hydrotherapy clinical pharma uh, clinical pilates with a physiotherapist and um yeah ot occupational therapy a lot of lot of therapies yeah mm
0: fantastic well thank you so much for sharing your personal story and also your insight as as an expert you know experiencing this and and obviously helping others with these conditions as well indispensable advice for you jenna so what are your five indispensable tips about invisible disease okay this i found really hard because i've got much more than five, but I've I've (laughs) narrowed it
1: down. (laughs) So number one, engage a general practitioner who's willing and able to learn about your condition. If it's not one they're familiar with, um, you need somebody on your side who's happy to learn. Um, I was my GP's first EDS patient, and he's learnt so much um, for me, uh, and I now can confidently recommend him to any other local EDS people. Um, who I have come into contact with um, as a GP who is EDS aware. And that's so important. Having a good working relationship with your GP is integral to ensuring that you receive those timely referrals to specialists and that your diagnosis is received in a timely manner. And all of this in turn leads to effective treatments being explored and utilised more quickly. Um, number two, have a good working relationship with your local pharmacists they're able and they're also really willing to assist in advocacy um, for you. But most importantly, for the chronic health patient who is often on multiple medications, uh, they're able to ensure that your medication usage is optimised at all times um, and recommend any changes to your GPs that might be necessary. Uh, Thirdly, if you have a chronic or rare illness or disease, join support groups. These can be tremendous for building a support network of people who know what you're going through. They're living the same condition as you. Um, And often this is just so important for um, sharing information, sharing um, the names of medical practitioners who are across your condition, um, but also just having more experienced people who've lived with the condition for longer than you, guide you in your journey. They, I really am a strong advocate for support groups. I've I've got a lot out of them and I've actually made some really good friends through them as well. Um, Number four, that there's no silly questions. Never be afraid to ask for further explanation, information or evidence from your healthcare provider so that they can back up what they're recommending. Um, Challenge the norms as often we're not the normal patient. So it's okay to ask for more information. And then finally, collaboration. Um, Collaboration with your healthcare practitioners, medical and allied health, carers, support workers, and fellow patients. Um, You need a solid multidisciplinary team of practitioners who are prepared to work together for you. Um, Yeah, and one more, sorry, if I can do six. Um, If you're having trouble navigating the system, um, consider engaging a professional patient advocate. They're rare, but they are out there and it's sort of an emerging area
0: um, and they can be a huge asset to your healthcare journey. I love that. I particularly love the message of it's really building relationships and a community, isn't it? So, Jenna, what I'll get you to do is um, give us some links as well to some of the support groups that you know of, um, and we'll put those in the show notes as well so that people can access that um, and get in contact with you too because it does sound like a lot of the time it's just having someone to chat to and, and feel like you're not alone in this space.
1: Certainly. It's really hard for the healthy people in your life to fully appreciate what you're going through. Um, as much as they can be a huge part of your support network, and of course they are, it's really hard to fully understand chronic health until you've
0: experienced it. Great conclusion. Thank you so much, Jenna. Thanks for your time and the insight into your condition. No problem. Great chatting with you, Anna. Indispensable contains general medicine and health advice and is not intended to be a substitute for individual medical advice. We endeavour to ensure it is accurate and up-to-date, however we can't guarantee that it will always apply to you. Always seek the guidance of your pharmacist or other qualified health professional with any questions you may have regarding your health or a medical condition. This episode is brought to you by me, the Indispensable Pharmacist. Don't forget to subscribe to Indispensable and leave a review so we can help more people. Look us up on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn by searching for Farm Online. That's P-H-A-R-M online. I'd love to hear your suggestions for the next topic to be covered on Indispensable.